I'm going to talk very briefly about, about what I do and, and the work of my group, but really I think the, the point of this is, is to try and illustrate at least my solution for slotting in the rest of life around that. Um, I called this a career in juggling organisation and work management uh, and guilt management because, you know, as well as, as the things that Jenny has just described I do professionally, I think these are the skills I've needed to, um, to, to carry on. Uh, and I think... Um, it was interesting when I told my husband this was what I called the talk. He said, why the guilt management? Do you feel guilty? <laughs> and, <laughs> have you not been listening for the last 15 years? Um, and, and I think that really illustrates one of the issues that I think women in particular um, do tend to feel guilty unless they're doing everything perfectly. So, um, but I think if you believe, as I do, that um, you can be a uh, better mother if you are more fulfilled as a person, then I think we have to find a solution to this. Um, so I think serendipity has played a huge part in my career and I think in, in many people's careers. Um, at school I wasn't really sure if I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer and thank goodness I made the right choice. Um, and I got to school despite my maths teacher rather than because of him. Um, I went to a comprehensive in South East London uh, and I had a maths teacher who belonged to a very fundamental religious group who um, really was of the view that women should be housewives, not do anything more ambitious than that. So uh, luckily I ignored him. Um, and, and actually that was, of course, the spur to, to get on and do well. So I got an A in my A-level maths and the three boys in my class got E's because they didn't have anything to aim for. Um, I went through medical school and thought I was going to be a GP and spent most of my life, think, or most of my medical training thinking I was going to be a GP. And um, uh, did six months in general practice and realised that really wasn't the right career for me. So did a sort of U-turn and went back into hospital medicine. Um, and from there got into infectious diseases and TB vaccine research and the rest is history. Um, but I think, you know, I wouldn't have planned it like this, or at least I certainly didn't plan it like this, and yet have ended up somewhere I'm very happy with. Um, so, so Jenny said a little bit about this. So I, I trained in London. I did an intercalated BSc in medical school and then uh, went on to qualify in medicine. Um, and I did my house officer and SHO post, so as they were called at the time, junior hospital posts, in London and then Brighton. Um, and it was Brighton that really spurred my interest in HIV. So this was um, in the early 1990s. It was really at the beginning of the HIV epidemic. And it was when we had no effective treatment for HIV. So I had a ward full of patients who were dying. And they were all young men who were blind from their CMV retinal wasting away from their disseminated MAC uh, and it was fascinating medicine I mean it was palliative care um, and when someone died that we filled the bed with someone else who was dying um, so it was an extraordinary time uh, and I think one of the things that constantly amazes me is how you know 20 years on we now have what is outpatient based medicine and in my HIV clinic I do here once a week I tell people this is a chronic disease this is like diabetes actually it's probably better than diabetes because you don't have to have an injection every day and as long as you take your tablets you're probably going to have a normal life expectancy and that's happened in my professional lifetime and I can't think of many other branches of medicine where there's, there's been that enormous shift um, so I then did some infectious diseases jobs and, and registrar posts um, and then moved to London. And it was really when I was doing that registrar job in London that we started seeing a lot of TB. So people with HIV are more likely to get TB. Um, and I was learning to bronchoscope, managing a lot of these TB patients, and, and started to think, hang on a minute, you know, this is a really interesting bug. Maybe I'd like to do some research on it. And that was really the first time that I thought, actually, maybe I, maybe I will go out and take some time out and do some research rather than just stay in clinical medicine. Um, and TB, of course, remains a very significant cause of mortality and morbidity throughout the world, even today. Actually, overall, the rates are very slowly declining throughout the world, although there are real hotspots, and the obvious one is sub-Saharan Africa. Um, 
but it, um, it, it's a very big problem, the emergence of drug-resistant strains. So the WHO describe extensively drug-resistant TB as virtually untreatable. It takes two years to treat, and, and many people die from this disease. Um, the overlap with the HIV epidemic, as I've said, and the burden of latent infection really means that, that this disease is, is nowhere near eradicated and is, is not going to be eradicated in, in my lifetime or my children's lifetime. Um, it's very clear that we need a better vaccine. The most effective way to control any infectious disease is with effective vaccination. Um, and, and TB is fascinating in that we already have a vaccine, which is one of the oldest vaccines. It's one of the world's most widely used vaccines, and it's one of the least understood vaccines. Um, this cartoon really illustrates, and I didn't know that I've got a pointer, the um, variability in efficacy, which is really the nub of the problem. Maybe this works. Um, Yes, it does. Thanks. Um, so, and if you look just at this top bar, the control trials, you can see that the British MRC study done here um, showed 80% efficacy in British school children, which was why up until fairly recently we continued to use BCG in adolescence in this, in this country. Um, but in contrast, in things like the Chingleput trial here in India, there was absolutely no efficacy. If you do a meta-analysis, the average efficacy comes out at about 50%, but really that's meaningless when that efficacy spans 0 to 80%. And it's understanding why BCG is so variable throughout the world and what we can do to overcome that variability because, of course, it's least efficacious in the areas of the world that need it the most. So that's really what sort of spurred me on to, to work on TB vaccines, really, as a, as a sort of long-term solution to this, to this challenge. So I was very fortunate. I got an MRC clinical training fellowship, um, which essentially funded my PhD, which I did with Adrian here. And at the time, actually, when I wrote this training fellowship, it was to do some work on, on human T-cell responses in, in patients who had TB. But at the time I joined Adrian's lab, he had some really exciting data coming out on the malaria vaccine program, which was really just starting up. So with absolutely his support and encouragement, I rewrote my proposal and did something completely different um, and made four TB vaccines set up the animal models, set up various collaborations, and it was one of those vaccines that we then moved into clinical trials, and, and we recently conducted, conducted the first efficacy trial in the world with, with any TB vaccine. So I got my PhD in, in 2001. Um, during that time, we got married um, and had child number one, uh, who, Alex, who is now 14, and uh, stroppy teenager who likes his screens more than mummy likes him to have his screens but um, so uh, so I uh, had some time off with Alex and in fact ended up writing up my PhD while I was off with Alex which was great because it um, uh, you know that, that sort of fitted very well and allowed me to be at home and have some time with him um, I then got a Wellcome Clinician Scientist Fellowship, which um, uh, similar schemes still exist. And this was uh, a, a unique scheme at the time because it allowed me to finish my clinical training and to carry on the research in parallel. And Wellcome were and remain a very flexible funder in terms of how I box and cox that. So in fact, for three years, what I did was I did two days clinical work a week, two days research a week, and had a day off with Alex and then Libs, who came along. She's now 12. Um, and that worked really well. I mean, I put here working 80% of full-time. Of course, I wasn't working 80% of full-time. I was being paid to work 80% of full-time. Um, and those days were long, and, and there was lots of box and coxing. But I did have a protected day a week at home with two very small children, which I think was, was very precious time, and I'm very pleased I did that. Um, so I was pregnant, I was 12 weeks pregnant with Libs when I had my PhD viva and I remember thinking at the time, I get narcolepsy in the first trimester and I remember thinking at the time, gosh, if I had a PhD viva two weeks beforehand, I think I needed a nap in the middle of it to get through. Um, 
So then, um, after some thought and a little bit of persuasion, uh, we had a third child, Dan, who um, is, is my joy and delight. Um, uh, he's now eight. Um, and I had my interview. I seem to make a habit of doing things when I'm 12 weeks pregnant. I had my senior fellowship interview when I was 12 weeks pregnant with Dan. Um, and it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and I really was past caring at that point because I really just needed to go to bed and go to sleep. So um, I was very lucky to get my senior fellowship, I think. Um, so I completed my clinical training in 2003, um, and since then I've been an honorary consultant here, and I do a clinical session a week and, and some CPD sessions, um, and see HIV, largely HIV patients in that clinical session. And I, I love that. It keeps my feet on the ground. It's very grounding doing an HIV clinic. You see life at its rawest, um, and it's, it's, it's a very important part of what I do. I got my first senior fellowship in 2005, took it up in 2006, and, and that more recently has been renewed and I was appointed Professor of Vaccinology here in 2010. Um, and there are two parts of my research program, really. There's a preclinical part of the group where we make and test vaccines in animal models, um, and then there's a clinical part where we do clinical trials. And some of those clinical trials are in the UK, and some of those clinical trials are in various countries in Africa where TB is, is considerably more endemic than it is in Oxford. Um, and this Gantt chart really just summarizes the clinical trials we've conducted since 2001 with the various constructs we've made in, in the group. Um, and I think to say in 2001, these trials were the first new TB vaccine trials of any TB vaccine candidate anywhere in the world. There was enormous concern at the time about various safety issues, none of which have come to pass, and, and indeed no one talks about them anymore, but it was the reason why there was a real focus on, on staying in, in the mouse model rather than moving th things forward into the clinic. And I think my clinical perspective really gave me the view that it, people are the target species for a new TB vaccine, and it's people we need to be testing these things in. Um, this program has, has led me to make and, and keep amazing collaborations throughout the world, and I'm, I'm really very privileged to be able to collaborate with some fantastic people, um, particularly in South Africa, where we have a huge program of research down in the Western Cape with the University of Cape Town and the South African TB Vaccine Initiative, um, in West Africa in the Gambia and in Senegal, um, and more recently, we're just starting, just a couple of weeks ago, a new trial in Uganda with Alison Elliott. So, and it's, it's an amazing privilege to go to these countries and, and work there, um, and not just go as a tourist. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's been a fantastic experience. So this is the efficacy trial we published about 15 months ago. So this uh, represented five years' work, probably five years of my life in terms of stress, um, an enormous collaborative effort through with two universities, University of Oxford and the University of, of Cape Town, um, an industrial partner, a Gates-funded product development partnership, ARAS, an enormous complex collaboration. This trial took five years, cost $30 million. Um, and, uh, and it's an achievement I'm very proud of because although the result wasn't as successful as we'd have liked and, and we didn't see enhancement in efficacy as we would have liked, ten years ago people were saying you couldn't even do these trials and it was never going to be possible to do an efficacy trial in people with a new TB vaccine. And I think we've shown it is possible, um, although, although challenging. So um, I, I think that represents a, a big part of what I've been doing over the last five years. So, all right, before I go on to talk about how you juggle all these things and, and the tricks and uh, things I've, I've learned along the way, so to summarise what I do at the moment, so I'm Professor of Vaccinology here and lead uh, a, a really wonderful group of, of great people who are very committed, very focused, and it's, it's, it's really a joy and pleasure to, to work with them. Um, many international collaborations, I've said largely through Africa, but increasingly through the US and Europe as well. Um, 
the TB vaccine community globally is actually very small, um, and that's lovely because it means everyone knows everyone and there's a real collaborative network rather than competitive network quite a lot of the time. I'm an honorary physician um, and do a clinical week. I've also recently taken on being academic foundation program lead. This means I have some sort of relatively light touch mentorship of junior doctors who are on an academic track. And I suppose I felt I was doing some of that informally anyway, and it was something I, I felt I wanted to feed back and, and support. I've recently been elected to be a member of the University Council, and that's a, a role I'm really excited about taking up. I'm a member of the Wellcome Clinical Interview Committee and, and the Globvac Board, which is a, a Norwegian Research Council funding. So, all right, that's, that's the upside, and I would consider and say to many people often that I have a job I love, uh, possibly the best job in the world, um, and, and I'm very, very lucky. Um, there are some downsides to it, and, and I think for me these are the two big ones. Um, travel, everyone says, gosh, the travel is so glamorous, it's so lovely, it's so fascinating, and it is not glamorous. It is fun, and it's great to go to new countries and meet different people, but it's really challenging when you have three small children. Um, Skype is a wonderful invention. We've done violin practice over Skype, and it's great because you can mute it when it's not going well. Um, uh, um, you know, you have to be creative. We've been very lucky. We've made family holidays around work trips, so my children have all been to Senegal, the Gambia, South Africa. Um, they get carted around wherever I can. And that's challenging in itself because then you're there with two hats on, and, and you, then you really feel like you're not doing anything properly, but it's still on balance. It's nice to have them there. Um, I'm very good at clipping the edges of trips, so I fly in at the last minute, fly out at the first minute. My PA is superb at accommodating this and, and juggling it all with me. Um, and, um, you know, that pays a price as well. You end up being quite tired. But, you know, if you can't do that, then you catch up on your sleep. So I, I think it, it's a box and cogs. And the trips are possible. I, I say no to a lot that I probably should say yes to, but um, I do what I think I have to. And, and clearly the workload is a challenge as well, workload both at home and at work. Um, I think it's essential to find something that keeps you sane. And for me, that's plowing up and down a swimming pool. For my friend, it's running. For someone else, it's curling up on a sofa with a book and a cup of tea and a do not disturb branded on your forehead. I think whatever it is, it doesn't matter, but it has to be something that's your, your escape route when you need to just get out of it. My, and my husband once offered me an underwater iPod, and I said, you must be joking. Being underwater <laughs> is the only time I have silence. Um, so, uh, and I think you have to learn to prioritise and say no. I'm not as good at saying no as I should be, but you get better at it with time. And I think you have to work out, can I really do this? Can I really fit this in? What else is this going to compromise? And is it better to say yes or should I say no because I won't be able to do it properly? Um, so, tips for successful juggling. Well, you don't have to have a partner, but if you do have one, they've got to sign up to this. They've got to be supportive. They've really got to sign up to the fact, I am in the US for five days next week, so you have got to pick the children up, take them to school, and do all that stuff. Um, and for me, that's also involved learning to let go. So, for, for a time when my children were very small, we operated a, a, a sort of routine where I would go into work at 6.30 in the morning uh, and, and Rupert would stay at home and do all the morning stuff and get the children to nursery or wherever they needed to be. Um, and then I would pick them up in the evening and do the other end of the day. And that was brilliant and it worked really, really well. And I love those few hours of work in the morning when there's no one else in and you can catch up on things. But it did mean that I would get home and there would be porridge bowls on the sofa and sometimes the television was on and pyjamas were goodness only knows where. And, you know, I had to let go of that. That wasn't how I would have done it, but if I was to keep my part of the deal, then I had to let him do it his way. So I did, and learned to live with porridge bowls on the sofa. Um, a network of supported, like-minded friends is absolutely critical, both for logistic support and for emotional support. Um, I, I think I'm very fortunate. I have a group of very close... Uh, 
women who think like I do, um, who all work, some part-time, some full-time, um, but you know, they're, they're absolutely essential to my sanity. Um, you need layers and layers of flexibility and, and backup plans. Uh, there was a point where I had almost every other parent's phone number in the school, in the classroom, when Alex first started school, on my mobile phone, and just worked my way down the list. Um, uh, and layers of, uh, layers of backup. One of my um, <laughs> most salutary tales was, and I'm not going to swear on camera, was um, I'd just landed in the Gambia and I'd just got off the plane and we just had Alex at that time and he was in nursery. And I rang my husband at about quarter past six expecting him to be at home with Alex. And he said, oh, hi, you know, I'm, I'm a bit busy because I'm still in clinic in Henley um, seeing patients. And I said, but it's quarter past six. And he said, yes. And I said, but nursery closes at half past six. Yes, but you're picking up Alex because I'm in the Gambia. Um, something, the Gambia. <laughs> and he said, oh, ah, well, I'm seeing patients, so you're going to have to sort it out. Mm. So I rang my friend who said, yes, of course, I'll go and get Alex. Rang nursery and said, uh, I'm in the Gambia. Rupert's in Henley. Uh, Jenny is coming to pick up Alex. And they said, well, what's the password? I said, what do you mean, what's the password? And I'm in the very broken line from the Gambia. And they said, well, we can't let Jenny have your son unless you can password. Ask her what her, her child's called. So, you know, my poor friend Jenny arrives at nursery to be told, well, what's your child called? You can't have Alex until you... She said, my child's called Tom. Fine, here's Alex. You know, it was all fine in the end. But um, as you can imagine, it was not trivial at the time. Uh, and we're very fortunate we live close to work. I don't have time in my life to spend hours commuting in. So um, I think it's a, it sounds like a silly thing. But actually, it's really important because, you know, I come back to work in the evening sometimes. I pop in at the weekends and, and you know, uh, it helps to live close to work. So I think flexibility in work is important, and, and for this, and I sort of think this is underexploited, um, and clearly, you know, you can go too far, but I think it, it needs to be considered more. Research is so much more flexible than clinical work. You know, you, I can box and cox a lot of what I do around other commitments. This afternoon, I'm at 4.30, I should be watching my youngest child in a school play. And yeah, that means I'll do the day's email tonight, but that's fine. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm lucky I'm my own boss. I've always had autonomy, but I think this is about negotiation with your boss. It's about trust. Um, you know, I hope that all my group and many of them are here, so you can tell me afterwards if you don't think this, know that within reason, I I'm happy for you to do whatever you want to do to make it all work. Um, and, I, and I really think that's important. And I, and I, think, um, I think that there is room for more exploitation on that. Um, organisation is critical. Rupert describes me as ferociously organised and the most organised person he's ever met. And I think I probably am. Uh, and I think you have to be because, you know, there's, there's no slack. Um, and you work out a system that suits you. Mine is lists. Everyone laughs at my endless scraps of paper with millions of lists on. But it works for me. And sometimes my children say, do you want me to rewrite your list, Mum? Or should I type it out for you? And I say, no, 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 leave it. I know where it all is. So, um, you know, you, you work out a system that works for you. Confidence, and I think this is a female thing, uh, and I've suffered with it, and I see many, many other women have the same. And, and I think one of the things that helps is if you have someone who believes in you. And, you know, I remember at school, I had my head of six who really said, you know, I believe you can do this. I went to a comprehensive in southeast London, which is now a failing school, and I was the only person in my year to go to university. Um, and I think you, you can do things and amazing things as long as you can find, you only need one person at any one point who really believes in you. Um, if you don't feel it, fake it. You know, I think the first time you stand up at the Keystone podium to give a lecture, uh, to give a plenary session, you're going to be scared. But you've got to pretend you're not. And, you know, I have a jacket I put on that I know looks good and fits me and, and I feel better in. I have lipstick I put on. Whatever it takes, fake it if, if you have to. Because then you trick yourself and in the end you can do it. 
Um, imposter syndrome, it amazed me when a very senior academic here and a very close friend, I had a conversation with her where I finally confessed that I realized that sooner or later, and this was many years ago, people were going to realize that I wasn't really all it, I was cracked up to be. And, and she confessed she felt the same. And I couldn't believe it. And, and you know, of course, many women feel like this. Uh, and it's just nonsense. Um, and I think you have to, we have to learn ways of dealing with it. And I think you have to learn strategies to deal with failure because I think if you're going to do research, things are not going to work. Um, and they're not always pu as public as our efficacy trial, but I think um, when we published our efficacy trial, I had lots and lots of emails from friends and collaborators who were incredibly supportive. And one of them sent me this quote, which I really like, from Beckett. Ever tried, ever failed, never matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. And, and I think, you know, it's not failing that's the problem. It's how we deal with that failure and how that we use that to spur us on to, to try better and harder next time. All right, so just a last couple of, of, of thoughts. So, you know, just do it. Just get on with it. Um, there's no right way to do this. Every single person in this room will find a different way to box and cox all this. Um, there is no right way to do it, but find a way that works for you, your partner, your kids, your, your life. Um, you have to be prepared to take risks, and it's a bit scary sometimes, but, you know, actually there are far more risks if you, if you don't do that. Um, take opportunities because it's only by taking opportunities that you can't predict that you end up in places that are really quite fun, even if you didn't plan them that way. Do your best and don't feel guilty. I've sort of given up with guilt, actually, and I think guilt is a, is a largely female thing, as illustrated by my husband, who really didn't get why the title of this talk was guilt management. Um, you know, I have now got to the point where I think I do what I can. I do the best I can at work, I do the best I can at home, and, and that will just have to do because I can't do any more. Um, and a quote from um, the first Sea Lord who uh, I was privileged to hear speak on a, on a leadership course recently was, so he's a head of the Navy, uh, was to focus on your head point. Um, so, you know, this is a sort of nautical term for if you're on a ship and you're heading somewhere, you know, just think about where you're heading and, and ignore the crap on the side. Um, and, I, and I think we need to do a bit more of that as well. So then, sorry, that's repeated at the bottom. That was meant to be deleted. And the last thing really is find a career you love because then you can do it. I love what I do. I, I want to get out of bed in the morning. I, I really enjoy every aspect of what I do. And I, and I think that's the key to, to being able to manage all this and, and cope with it. Diversity is really important. Uh, of course, there's been a large dose of luck in everything I've done. Uh, and I think for many people there is. But, but actually, you make your own luck as well. So... Um, there's no rush, you know. Uh, people used to say to me, you have to be a consultant by the time you're 30 or 40 or whatever it was. You know, life is long, and if you want to take a bit longer because you want to slow down a little bit and have some children or do something slightly different, then, you know, I think I'm going to be working until I'm 70, so goodness only knows how long you guys are going to be working for. And I think the, th the last thing is really to be authentic, to be yourself. We'll only really have achieved equality when women can be women and do it on their own terms and, and not personify some of the more negative aspects of male leadership in order to get there. I think when I was at, at medical school, there was a, a female obstetrician on my, uh, who I worked with who wouldn't allow women to wear trousers on her firm. What was that about? Uh, uh, you know, that, that's not what it's about. And, th and there are women who, who, who are not supportive of other women, but I think that's, that's nonsense. We have to do it on our own terms. So, you know, if I have to leave a meeting and not stay for the dinner because actually I want to get home so that I'm here for my daughter's birthday first thing in the morning, then that's fine. You know, that's more important to me. Um, so I think we do it on our own terms. I hope that was what you wanted. <laughs> Thank you very much.